When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. late September. I was 29 at the time. It was a Wednesday and I had been working up till about 5.30 I guess it was. So I got home about 6.30 and changed clothes. It was kind of a comfortable night for uh, that time of year. Uh, sort of like a Indian summer weather I guess. I was just wearing a pair of flip-flops and jeans and a t-shirt. I went out to this guy's house somewhat in the country and we threw some horseshoes and drank a few beers and we smoked a couple of joints and uh, I got some pot from him and uh, left about 9.30. I had to meet a friend of mine at the Wendy's at Eastgate Shopping Center in Raleigh at 10 o'clock. So I met him then across the street, a friend of mine, Chris, lived, and he was at home by himself, and I went over to his house. We drank a few beers, and there was a baseball game on. I can't remember exactly who was playing, but it was the playoffs. This game went into extra innings, <laughs> and of all the things, I mean, if that hadn't happened, I would have went right home, and, and everything uh, you know, would have been normal the next day. Twenty-six-year-old Jaquetta Thomas, a prostitute who was found stabbed and bludgeoned to death on Blunt Street in Raleigh in 1991. Greg Taylor became a suspect in this case because his truck was found near Jaquetta Thomas's body. Prosecutors argue that Taylor killed her when she refused his sexual advances. Taylor says Raleigh police of his belongings, clothes, and a collection of pocket knives. Investigators found blood on his truck. The officers who testified both testified it was human blood. My report, you cannot say that that's blood. The lack of evidence was so clear to us. There is nothing here. No weapon, no witnesses, no transfer of physical evidence. He was guilty of being stupid, but not guilty <laughs> of killing anyone. No one considered it a possibility that he would actually get convicted. This whole thing was rotten from the beginning. I've been in prison now close to 17 years, and a lot has changed out there. Life goes on. The police say she was just a prostitute getting high, chasing her high. She's not important to us. So we're going to downplay this, push it on the rug, we're going to arrest some folks, we're going to be done with it. Well, guess what? Now it's right back to bite you. I absolutely did not kill Jaquetta Thomas. 
Greg was always, he was interested in a lot of things. Building forts and playing in creeks and riding bicycles. He played on Little League baseball and Little League football and and um, he, he was in Boy Scouts and very active on the swim team and um, he was just a lot of fun. I think I probably started that party lifestyle when I was 15. It was entirely peer pressure. Everywhere you turn, that's what it was, just the social norm back then. Something that I embraced from the very beginning, just continued on. Greg got a car when he was 16, mm -hmm. and then he didn't have a whole lot of time for, for Dad. Somewhere in, in, in that time frame is when he, I think he started experimenting with drugs. You know, and I met Becky in high school. In 1980, Becky and I were sitting in the homeroom and she had asked me, you know, what I was doing for the weekend. You know, I told her I was going out and hanging out with some friends, you know, and she's welcome to tag along if she wanted. There was a lot of partying going on. That was pretty much what everyone did <laughs> in high school at that time. You know, she got a true glimpse of, you know, what I was like. And we ended up starting dating. And uh, that was back in 1980. When I met him, he was very quiet. But uh, when you got him around a group of friends, he was, you know, kind of the life of the party. Becky went to NC State. She was a math major. In the beginning, I worked at an upholstery supply place. Then I ended up uh, getting pregnant, so that's why we ended up getting married. And Kristen came along. We established our life in Cary, and I had a time of good career, you know, a family I loved, and, you know, still all the friends, you know, I thought the world of. This is a young man who has gotten a good job, who is so devoted to his daughter, and so good with his daughter, and has made a wonderful home for her. He was a good dad, you know, goofy and fun, and I remember, you know, sitting up and watching cartoons with him and uh, Scooby-Doo and, <laughs> um, you know, we would have fun and, you know, he, and we just did normal family stuff. We went camping, we went on trips. He wasn't a bad person. He had some bad, very bad behaviors that probably would have gotten him. But uh, never, never any violent you know, behavior. Not that the we total, were Some total of his bad behavior had to do with substance abuse. I think he did get arrested for breaking out a window in Becky's dorm when he was trying to throw a pebble up <laughs> to her dorm window. Yeah. And, it, and it broke the window. <laughs> there were some good times and then it seemed like things would really go to hell and you know I would tell him I wanted to move out and he would get better for three months and then it would slowly degrade and it just went through that pattern for 10 years or so. <laughs> I look back on with regret, really, the kind of person, you know, that I, that I was and that I overindulged in drugs and alcohol. And, uh, you know, and like my wife would be the first to tell you, you know, I spent way too much money. I was gone way too much. I was irresponsible. I ignored the uh, household chores sometimes, you know. And, uh, and she put up with a lot, you know, she really did.
So actually it was a, kind of a quiet week. He hadn't been out at all during the week. And you know, he just called and said he was gonna watch a baseball game or something with a, some friends of his. But this game went into extra innings and something popped in my head. Well, I've got a few more you know, minutes to be out and why don't I just run over to Kentwood and pick up a couple of rocks and come back. And I bought those two rocks. And about the same time I completed the purchase, I looked over at my passenger side and the door was open. And this guy I had known through uh, several other previous nights, such as that one, was at the door and he hopped in, you know, so I know that, you know, he pretty much wanted to get high. And that was Johnny Beck. And uh, when he showed up, it was like, kind of like immediately my plans, you know, changed even in my head. I said, well, okay, well, you know, Johnny and I will go get high now and he'll probably want to do some more, you know. And that's where we took it from there and uh, smoked those two rocks. Um, Johnny suggested then that he knew where some that was good at downtown. I remember that night. I remember Greg and I just um, riding and spending a lot of money, you know. Um, I don't know where he kept getting it from, but he had it, and uh, I knew where to cop from, and we just rolled and got high. And we went over to his brother's house. We sat there and smoked those rocks and drank a beer too. So we got in the truck. I think the clock in my truck said like 2.08. You know, the crack was all gone and we had what was left of that six pack with us. And I went uh, towards downtown and me still having some money left, um, offered up the idea that, you know, maybe we purchase another couple of rocks. And again, you know, I pulled up past the area of transaction and Johnny got out and bought the drugs and got back in the truck. When we got down in that cul-de-sac, it was like uh, zero activity. It was dark. There were no street lights. It was uh, an industrial complex. There wasn't any kind of houses or anything. Halfway through turning through the circle, I noticed a dirt or gravel drive heading up off the circle there. We completed the turn through the circle and parked, heading back up the other way. And that, to me, you know, seemed like a pretty good idea at the time, good place to get high. It was desolate, but then after we took a hit or two, it was like, well, you know, here we could be like trapped in this circle. <laughs> so, uh, you know, if a cop would be happen to come down the street and uh, so maybe going up that path might be a better idea. I turned the truck around and went back up that dirt road. And we sat there for a while. If we didn't smoke all of what we had left, we smoked the majority of it. I guess on the impulse, wanted to spin my tires a little bit on the way out. And <laughs> so I pulled across the path and immediately bottomed out on something or ran into a ditch, you know. <laughs> and so I put it in four wheel drive and tried to back out and the truck wouldn't do anything. And what I was dealing with was the front of the truck was pretty much buried. The only thing that occurred to us was just walking, you know, the way we came in. We had our beer and we had cigarettes, and by now it's probably about 3.30 in the morning or something like that. 
We get about like halfway across that circle and he said something to the nature, what's that back there? So I, you know, I told Johnny, so it looks like a roll of carpet or something. He's like, no, look again, you know, I think maybe it's a body or something. You know, I kept telling him, it's a mannequin. I told Johnny, I said, Johnny, I said, I, you know, I think it's probably a body. It was like, yo, just, just come on, let's go. You know, let's go, because I know what RPD is going to First, you're the first suspect. You are the suspect, you know, so uh, I said, just leave it. Let's come on, man, let's go. Don't call no police or nothing. So we, we journeyed on, you know. You know, like a personal reason, I guess, you know, for for not wanting to call the police. Uh, I've got two ounces of pot on me. I'm driving without a license. I've been smoking crack all night and drinking beer. And, you know, maybe it would be best that, uh, you know, they didn't see me in this condition. I knew I had to go down there in the morning and get the truck, so I figured that I could call the police then if they already weren't down there. And if they were down there, of course, you know, tell them what little I knew. Weighing the pros and cons of the situation out, it just seemed best that we did just forget we looked in that direction. We kept on walking up the road. Silver Honda went by, and I think this was the first car that we had seen, too. And so we just kind of made a, you know, half-hearted wave or whatever, and this car pulled into a gas station right where, right where we were at. <laughs> and, uh, and we told them, you know, that, that our truck was stuck and that uh, we needed a ride, and her name was Barbara. And neither Johnny or I had ever met her before, to the best of my knowledge. Johnny got in the front seat and I got in the back. You know, Johnny and I had already, you know, talked about, well, if we can, you know, we'll just keep on getting high. So she says, well, I know where something's at. And she took us over to what I learned to be East Street. There was a yellow house on East Street. I gave her two 20s. And they brought back two rocks and also somebody else. And we smoked those two rocks, and then we went back parked about the exact same place, only this time we went inside that house and all of us went in. It was fairly crowded inside this house. Johnny and I are in this bathroom and Barbara comes in with a drug dealer and we purchase these rocks and we're standing there getting high. So as we're walking out of this room that's off the kitchen and I'm walking by the kitchen table, there's these two girls sitting at the kitchen table. So we left walked out the front door, got in Barbara's car. So, you know, I told her, I said, well, you know, just drop me off up here at uh, Buck Jones Road. I walked to a gas station, Mini Mart type place, and there was some pay phones right on the side of the road. And I called my wife and you know, told her where I was at, that I got the truck stuck in the mud. That was a big surprise, and when he was just telling me to pick him up, like, where's your car? What, you know, what happened? She was not happy, and I can understand that. So we got home, I took a shower, put on some work clothes. We dropped Kristen off at school, and proceeded to go to the scene. There was not a whole lot said between Becky and I, you know, in between uh, that phone call and, you know, going to the circle. When we did get down on that road, there was police cars everywhere. You know, I was, you know, saw them all kind of standing around in a circle looking down, and I'm like, wow, it looks like 
they're standing around looking at a body or something. Right. Oh, God, that's right. You know. yeah, that's when I told her, I said, yeah, that's probably what they're looking at. Johnny and I thought, you know, that we had seen that walking out of that place. So I went to the office and talked to my boss, John, and John says, really, you know, you just, you know, they're looking at a body down there? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, well, let's go check it out. And all three of us got out of the car and walked toward the police car. And I told the, the uh, policeman that my truck was stuck in the mud back up off of that path. And I asked him, you know, how long they would be, you know, before I could get it out. And he said, well, let me let you talk to the, uh, one of the detectives. Johnny Howard asked me to meet him at the police station and want to know would I answer any questions. I told him, sure. We just thought, you know, we were going through formalities so they could cross Greg off the list quickly and just didn't expect anything to go on beyond a day. I thought when I was talking to Johnny Howard that, you know, it was going to be basically, you know, what time were you there, you know, what did you see, what time did you leave, that type thing. I was just somebody who was now making that 911 call, basically. Hey, I saw somebody in the circle, I believe they were dead, this is the time we got here, this is what time we left. You know, and here I was, you know, I'm, I'm fixing to have to admit to an officer of the law that I was doing drugs and out driving without a license. And my story ended up being that I went to Johnny's and had a few beers and decided to go four-wheeling. Detective Howard explained that, you know, son, we're not interested, you know, in any kind of drugs or, or, or drinking or, any, or anything like that. We're just trying to, to solve this crime here. So you're trying to tell me you or John didn't have nothing to do with this woman's death? The point where he says, we have a witness that says a little bit differently, that was the point that I became concerned because, first of all, I knew there could not be a witness that would say something differently. You cut her throat. You stabbed her. And once he you know, started accusing me about Johnny and I being involved in that crime, his... Uh, level of attack kept increasing throughout those interrogations. He told so many lies, you know, about evidence being in that truck, footprints all around that body. We can lift fingerprints from bodies. And all this time, I'm like, well, do it, please. You know, you'll see that I'm telling the truth. Well, you'll be an innocent man in prison. Johnny Beck was the one he was after. And he felt like he could break me down to get to Johnny Beck. What started out as, as you know, as me trying to help and you know, telling him anything you want me to do to help, I will. Uh, ended up basically as me saying I didn't do it, I didn't do it over and over, and him accusing me over and over, you did it, you did it, you did it, you're going to death row. What's your daughter gonna think when she sees you behind a glass? Um, you know. swing set in the backyard and we spent a lot of hours back there on that swing set laughing talking playing she was more the mischievous one I think I was more quiet but she would reel me in to do things that would get us in trouble so <laughs> we used to pick plums she loved plums we were two years apart so we, we, we were each other's company 
And we moved up here when I was in the sixth grade, so I was about 11. So she was right at 13. And by then, she was so not who I knew. We weren't as close. Um, I, I, I could still feel the love, but I wasn't as important. It just went downhill from there. I don't remember spending a lot of time with her before I left to go in the military. Um, but we did write. So I went to Germany and I did my first tour in Germany. I had come home to get my son at that point and I saw her and she was in the hospital. And that was when I learned how, I guess the extent of her drug use. I knew, I always knew, but the extent because the, I don't know if it was a doctor or a nurse that pulled me aside and said, you really need to try to talk to your sister. You know, she really needs to let these drugs go. It's, it's gonna kill her. But I remember telling her, you know, I love you. You know, I'm here and I really wish you'd get some help, you know. And that was it. I went on back to Germany with my son and I bet I wasn't gone four or five months. And then I got the phone call. I kind of had been expecting it. But I, my expectation was drug overdose. I was not prepared for, your sister's body was found and she was murdered. I was not prepared for that. Seven thirty or so in the morning, and uh, the phone rang. I answered it, and it was Eddie. Eddie uh, said, "Dad, I've got some bad news." "What is it?" He said, "Well, Greg has been arrested." I said, "For what?" And he says, "He's been arrested for murder." And uh, I went limp. I mean, I, my legs literally buckled, and I had to grab hold of the counter to uh, keep from falling on the floor. It, w it was just um, totally devastating, unbelievable that this could ever happen. At that point, it's like, okay, then you have to call everyone and call all the lawyers you can find and get recommendations for you know what lawyers to talk to. I watched that movie, Fatal Vision, and was somewhat familiar with the Jeffrey McDonald case and Jim Blackburn's work on it. Blackburn had a huge reputation as being someone who can sift through evidence and find the truth the way he did in the Jeffrey McDonald case. When I was uh, first arrested and put in a holding cell, I stayed there for quite a while and then finally was dressed out in an orange jumpsuit and I was sent to what's called E-Block. A lot of orange, um, people sitting on the picnic table, people laying on mats, probably about 45 to 50 people in all, uh, even though E-Block slept only 24. And I remember telling Greg emphatically, Greg, do not talk about this case. People will use it. I remember telling him that. And what he said, I don't know. You know, but I know he couldn't have told somebody he killed him. I know that. I was standing in line to get a, uh, a juice. And there was this, this white guy standing in front of me kept looking back at me. 
So I was like, well, what are you in for? He said he was in for embezzlement. He had five years and he was just waiting to uh, be shipped. And then I was led up to my first appearance in court. And there was like a line of us. Uh, Johnny Beck and I were at the front of the line and we were all chained together. When we got off the elevator, WRL News was, was there. And I looked at the camera and said, we didn't do it. I didn't think it was a flight risk at all. I thought there was a substantial case uh, that could be made on his behalf, that he had a very triable case. And Tom Ford, he's holding like this statement in his hand like this. Your Honor, I have this uh, statement from jailhouse informant Ernest Andrews, and where Mr. Taylor admits to some involvement in this crime. That was the first time I'd heard the name Ernest Andrews. You know, of course, I was upset to hear that anything like that could uh, could be brought up because I know that it was false. I was granted a bond that day. We began to learn a lot more, and it became evident that they didn't have any evidence. Uh, the only evidence that they had was Greg's truck was near a dead body. If he had really committed this murder, common sense would tell you that he would not go home and get his wife, stop by his office and get his boss, and go down to the scene of the crime where the, he expected the body to be there. I mean, that alone would tell you that he's not guilty to me. I couldn't understand if I was a police officer and I saw that truck and I saw that body. I could understand the amount of suspicion, but once you start investigation, the facts from the very beginning point to innocence. So I was adamant and very, I guess, impatient too with James Blackburn that you know, he'd do what he could to either get this thing in the courtroom and get it thrown out one. And months went by Sometimes you wouldn't hear anything from him. You know, I'd call him up, there wouldn't be any progress. He would put me off for one reason or another. We went to the crime scene a number of times. We looked at the case reports, we looked at the interviews, we looked at the physical evidence. As to whether or not I telephoned him and talked with him on a regular basis, the truth is I don't remember. In 1992, uh, my life was beginning to slowly go bad and go south. The trial was, you know, coming up, you know, that deadline was approaching you know, rapidly and very little was being done. Then later, I believe it was in January of uh, 93, when we were called to Jim Blackburn's office at uh, Smith Elms Mullison Moore, come to find out that he had been embezzling money and the money that we had paid him was part of that. He surrendered his law license. I wound up being diagnosed with a major depressive disorder, one step below manic depression, what is now called bipolar. 
with a breakdown. What people don't understand is that it robs you of the ability to focus or to concentrate or to care in the way that you were supposed to do. And I think that's what happened to me. You know, and this is the guy that represented me for 16 months. Um, <laughs> and all of a sudden I was without an, an attorney. When James Blackburn surrendered his law license, his firm told Greg, find an attorney to represent you, we will pay his fee. Ended up calling Mike Dodd. And Mike Dodd was just adamant that this was the weakest case he had ever seen, and he was just certain, you know, he was putting all his eggs in the basket of just getting the judge to throw it out. He told Greg early on that we don't have to present a defense. They don't have a case against you. I want the last argument. If I present a defense, I cannot have the last argument before the jury. I'm a football fan and a basketball fan. and uh, You know, I followed sports all my life and played in sports, you know, since I was little. And it's really the first time I've ever heard that the best defense is no defense. Their theory was that Greg and Johnny had been driving around, picked this woman up to trade sex for drugs, that she changed her mind after receiving all these drugs. She jumped out of the truck somehow, and Johnny Beck uh, chased her down, and either Greg got out of the truck and participated in that, or Johnny killed her alone and then got back in the truck. In my opinion, the cause of death in this case was due to blunt traumatic or blunt force injuries of the head and the neck. To your knowledge, was he able to make any identifications to the decedent's body from any of the latent fingerprints that you lifted out of the vehicle? Out of the vehicle? No, sir. We have very good reason to believe that the vehicle passed through the blood of the victim. We saw what we believed to be tracks of what might have been blood from a vehicle on the pavement near the body. We tested several of these suspicious spots and they did in fact react as if they were blood. But we decided to come back in the evening and use luminol, which is more sensitive, and we determined that there was a track of what appeared to be blood all the way in a circle, then it went into the driveway that goes out into the field. Describe for us in regards to the vehicle what you did in the matter of blood testing. There were several suspicious stains. They were tested with phenolphthalein, showed they could possibly be human blood. We got a positive testing under the fender well, uh, underneath the front passenger wheel, and we also got a positive testing underneath the undercarriage of the A-frame. The phenolphthalein is an initial test we used to determine the presence of human blood. She went straight down the path continued on past the vehicle approximately 10 to 15 feet on the other side of the vehicle where it went down a steep embankment and started working in a circle and stopped. And what indication did that give you? The scent had disappeared. Give her the command to find again. She went straight to the driver's side of the vehicle, jumped up on the vehicle, on the door, started smelling around the door handle, 
and on the window frame. She went on around to the passenger door of the vehicle, did the very same thing. What indication did that give you? The scent that was on that gauze had been somewhere in that vehicle, around that vehicle, or on that vehicle. I came up in the house with a date and they were sitting in the kitchen. They were smoking crack. The girl Jackie and these two guys. The white male and the black male? Yes. I came back maybe 45 minutes later. The girl Jackie and the black male and the white male were coming out of the kitchen door down the side of the house. How does this defendant, seated at the end of the table over here, compare to the white man you saw in the kitchen? That's the man. In September of 1991, did you have occasion to be in the Wake County Jail? Yes, sir, I did. He'd just been given a five-year sentence for embezzlement. Would you tell us what conversations you had, if any, with this defendant? Just conversation. He said things got really screwed up. They were going out and party, have sex, and get high. Did he tell you whether or not the girl was in his vehicle? Yes. In fact, they were in the vehicle. They were partying, drinking. Then he said the girl got mad or upset, jump out, he hit her. The other guy jumped out, he ran after her. She says that uh, we were clean, that we were not carrying anything, and we acted like two people whose car broke down. Actually, I was, I was discussing this with Mike Dodd at one of the breaks, and you know, I mentioned uh, the woman who gave them a ride home, and that you know, she had even testified that she was with Greg and Johnny in that house, you know, Eva Kelly's house, and he was saying, but the police never found her. I'm like, what are you talking about? They found her. I was just reading over her police statement last night. It's like. Do you have a copy of it? I'm like, you've got to be freaking kidding me. <laughs> like, you know, like, this is a key witness testimony and, and you don't even have it. You're in the trial and you've never seen it before. We had two lawyers that didn't do their job, and the one that went to court made a terrible decision about not presenting a defense. Mike uh, made it attempts to discredit Ernest Andrews, even Marie Kelly. Everybody that I put on the witness stand, he, you know, artfully cross-examined. To say he put on no defense is, is actually not a, f a fair statement of what went on. And he made uh, what I, I can tell you was an excellent argument for a dismissal at the close of the evidence. It, uh, it did have me worried. The lack of evidence was so clear to us. There is nothing here. How can they take the absence of facts and distort them? <laughs> if you looked at the trial transcript, the only thing you could believe was that Greg was innocent. We've had uh, several law enforcement officers who've read the transcript and said, what else was there? There had to have been something else. All the things went well for the, <laughs> the other side, and you know, Mike Dodd really just relied on you know, the weakness of the case and appealing to the judge, but once the judge refused to throw it out, he didn't have much left to, to go on. 
well, I'd called Mike Dodd to, you know, bring up my reservations and, you know, he talked to me for a while and he's like, you know, I'm just so tired of even thinking about this trial. I'm just going to try to forget about it for the weekend. I'm going to go work in my yard and you know, just <laughs> see you Monday, basically. I remember I was going to school and, uh, and he said, see you when you get home. We know that this defendant was at the scene before she was killed. His truck was found at the scene. There's all kinds of evidence. The evidence of Sadie the Bloodhound, the evidence of Eva Kelly and Ernest Andrews. There's blood on the car. The state has proven to you beyond a reasonable doubt that this defendant participated with Johnny Beck and the murder of this woman. I remember that he said he was like giving a commencement speech for the Wake Forest uh, Law School or something, you know, within a week, you know, before or after. And I remember thinking like, this sounds a lot like a commencement speech for a law school. <laughs> he uh, started out talking about a tapestry and it kind of lost me after that. My optimism was still there, but at the same time, you know, of course I was fairly apprehensive what could go wrong, you know, will go wrong. I'd seen that with this case all the way from day one. The jury went out and was back before you could sneeze <laughs> uh, with a verdict. For a jury to come back that fast is usually um, the death knell for, for the state. Uh, and I was shocked that they came back that fast. The judge had Greg stand up read the verdict and was guilty and then just hardly I paused from where I remember said uh, you're now sentenced to life in prison and Greg's mouth just fell, fell open and he turned around and looked at us and it was just this pale pale white but just disbelief and believe it or not the shock on Tom Ford's face is what I remember the most and when that word guilty came down his jaw just dropped. And even the judge seemed surprised. And uh, so then, you know, that just kind of set around like, round two of, you know, what do we do now? Sitting through three days of testimony, nothing I heard told me that Greg had committed this crime. And uh, I was very surprised when they returned a guilty verdict. That's when the nightmare really began. No one considered it a possibility that he would actually get convicted. I was led out of that courtroom and put into a holding cell. I, I laid there and I kept thinking, you know, what is this about? What is it really about? Because uh, because if there was a God up there that he had made this happen for a reason.
This is a place off of Western Boulevard that I had driven by, ridden by countless times. And I can even remember, you know, asking my mom when I was like five or six years old, you know, what that place was. That's where they send the bad people. Always, I mean, absolutely, with utmost confidence, knew I would never be in there because I would never do anything to be in there. And there I was going through those gates. And I couldn't really tell you how far I walked or was escorted before I finally got to, uh, led to an, an empty room and was asked to strip down. So off went the suit, Norm went a jumpsuit. First night, yeah, I was in safekeeping. I laid down, you know, it was probably right after they turned the lights out, 11.30, midnight or something like that. And, uh, and actually after having been up for so long, I went right to sleep. Which was a good thing. But waking up, <laughs> waking up was a bad thing. The next day, Tuesday, I was taken out of safekeeping. That was quite an experience, walking into those dorms and you know, people are looking at you, and everybody knows you, knows what you're in for all of a sudden. Anybody who asked, I was like, I did not do it. Right away, you know, I kind of find my, found myself on the defensive as far as my case went. Mike Dodd came to see me that day. And, you know, looking through the glass there in the, in the visitor's booth, you know, he told me, he said, Greg, he said, you should not be in here. He said, but it'll take 12 months at least and 15 months at the most before your appeal goes through. We just knew because he was, was innocent and because they had no evidence that he was gonna be freed on appeal. And I think I had some optimism, you know, as far as this actually working out in the 12 or 15 months and that it was my duty until then to get everything out of this that I could from a positive standpoint and the hopes that uh, when I get out that I'll be the kind of husband and father that I was supposed to be. That was my goal. But time changes everything. into Nash and it was a brand new prison and it was single cell. I thought, well, you know, I can do the next year here. 
Everything was, you know, brand new and clean. You don't ask anybody what they're in for, and you don't really tell anybody what you're in for. You just kind of go on about your business and, and uh, are judged pretty much on how you treat others. They have always gone after me with the idea that I would roll on Johnny Beck. We have uh, deals offered in writing about how they will go to the governor and have his charges uh, dismissed or his sentence eliminated if he will give testimony against Johnny Beck. And then three years later, they came back again. And five years later, they came back again. But yet, I'm sitting here frustrated because I have to stick to the truth. And that's, you know, that was my only, my only choice, I felt. So they dropped the charges on Johnny Beck. Sitting in Wake County Jail for two years, um, I mean, it's just wasted time. You know, you can't get it back. It's unproductive time. You don't do nothing. You just sit there, you know, you're stressed. I lost a wife and I missed some years of my children growing up, you know. No one has uh, approached me and said, uh, you know, Johnny, we're sorry for the, uh, the time you spent in uh, the county jail or something that you didn't do. But uh, I mean, it, it kind of, it, it bothers me, you know, that, that no one could step forward and, uh, and say that. I got the letter on Thursday, and I thought, this can't be happening. My wife has been through a lot with me and stuck by me and after the verdict. She uh, you know, came to see me, and she started right away with, uh, don't even talk about me leaving you. I'm not, you know. Even if it takes 20 years. At some point, I need to draw the line because you know it's not like this was a fabulous marriage to begin with. It's not like I didn't want him out like every three months <laughs> all along the way. So it's like, like I've done what I could to help, and you know I figured I'd help out with the appeal. But since it was going to take so long, it's like it's time to live my life. You know, I didn't do this. It just seems like about the time that I started accepting that she was actually going to stick by me, she decided to leave. So I called her. So she did come up that Sunday. And uh, basically, it just ended up being a say goodbye. That was the end of that. If I was in her shoes, I would have left too. And, you know, but nevertheless, it was real hard, you know, to to embrace it. And you know, and it took a lot of years for me to to be able to.
we'd gone into this thing hoping with appeals, certainly people will read this and know that this man did not commit the crime. Learned the hard way. It's only at the trial level that the facts are considered. The jury is the finder of fact. And uh, once it goes up on appeal, all that's being considered is the, uh, the legal arguments. Uh, and innocence is not an appealable issue. Um, you can't go to the courts and say, I'm appealing my case because I'm innocent and the jury got it wrong. That's not good enough. You are guilty until proven innocent, but you don't have a chance on appeal to prove yourself innocent. You know, you first get to prison and, you know, your first thought's not really, well, I think I learned an associate's degree, you know. Survival instincts are really strong and, you know, and your security needs outweigh pretty much anything else at that time. They opened up school. I think my mindset went right away from being in prison to being in school. He used up all of the available educational credits that the prison system allows. You know, if you were to find me at that time, you would find me in my cell buried in a book. I studied a lot of programming, a lot of networking, telecommunications, things like that. through the gates here and struggling with all my bags and everything and I walked by this first building and I saw two friends of mine from Nash and they looked at me and they said welcome to hell <laughs> and uh, this place has been quite a uh, quite an experience uh, with a single cell you can kind of shut out a lot of what prison's about but there's no chance around here there's uh, 18 dorms, 34 people in each dorm. It's about like a double wide trailer, 34 people in it. And you don't get to pick the other 33, you know. Just one disappointment after another, and each time you wonder, is this the end of the road? Where else can we go? And, and we knew after we had been denied the DNA evidence, we were at the end of our rope. And uh, it's hard to go down and, and face your son and tell him, we just can't do anymore, son. But we've done all we can do. One thing you learn in prison is to be understanding of other people's uh, peculiarities, I guess you could say. So, you know, when the guy next to me is packaging up heroin or the guy across the dorm there is trying to move his homosexual partner in or the card table's in full swing, somebody's gambled up all their money and looking to break into a locker. And, 
it's really just so much going on <laughs> all the time. And of course, with my daughter, the Lord, you know, life goes on with her too. Growing up without my dad and having him in prison has been extremely difficult. And those years growing up, those teenage years, that were just really difficult not to have him there. It's unbelievable how she's turned out. I'm so proud of her. She found uh, what was first a boyfriend, then turned into a fiance. Okay, why doesn't he want to meet me? Um, and you know, you start thinking of all the reasons why that aren't positive, that that are negative things. You know, when he meets his son-in-law, he wants him to meet him as as my dad, not as an inmate. And I kept thinking. <laughs> You know, when I heard about this wedding, well, maybe they'll just go to the justice of the peace and tie the knot or something. I can deal with that. But she's going on and on and on about a dress and a church and a preacher and bridesmaids and all those things, that, you know, of course. So it was going to be a big affair and I was going to miss it. So I kept wondering, well, how's she going to get down the aisle? She said nobody was going to walk her down the aisle. That if her daddy couldn't be there, she didn't want anybody to be. <laughs> Prison, I guess, ultimately is what you make out of it, and you know, and I've tried to do the best with it. Stayed in school, stayed in work, stayed in myself. You have to go out of your way to find Greg in prison. Uh, you'll find me on my bunk, you know, uh, reading a book. You'll find me out on the weight pile, or you'll find me in the library. In 17 years now, in North Carolina prison system, he has never had a disciplinary infraction. And when it gets tough, I look at, uh, some of the other ones who like it better than I do or seem to. And I think, well, they can get through today than I can. So that's kind of like how I've done 6,100 days or so. I've been in prison now close to 17 years. And a lot has changed out there. A lot of life goes on. If anybody knows the reason why these tears come, it's because I'm probably thinking about my daughter. She's uh, 
Call from being nine years old to 26 years old. As if the time hadn't gone by. But as The North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence is part of the National Innocence Network. Not only do we work on policy at the Center on Actual Innocence, which is a nonprofit, but we uh, work on case distribution and case litigation out of our office as well. We refer cases to the Innocence Inquiry Commission and we assign cases to the Innocence Projects in North Carolina for student uh, involvement. We are the only state that has the Innocence Inquiry Commission, the only one in the nation. And so I think um, while there's still a lot of work to be done, North Carolina is a leader in, this, in the nation for trying to reform the criminal justice system to make sure it's, it's fair. One more tool, that's all this is. An additional tool uh, that has been needed for a long time to look at these cases that can be demonstrated to have a flaw in them. Greg was procedurally barred at every level, and so after we worked on the case for two years, we realized that we couldn't be successful in the courts with the evidence we could get access to. We needed the special powers of the Innocence Inquiry Commission. To, to completely open the boxes on that case. Okay, Mr. Taylor, I was just telling you about this person named Craig Taylor uh -huh. um, that is now in prison for drug crimes and a violent assault, and he is saying that he sold Johnny Beck drugs that night. He has confessed in detail to killing the victim. What? He's confessed to killing Jaquetta Thomas by himself. Are you serious? Thank God. It's all right. For the it very first time, we really had hope. And that just seemed to seal everything, and it seemed to be, okay, a door is going to close now behind us and it's going to close behind Greg and he can come through and go through that prison gate. And everything's going to be wonderful. First thing I did was pick up the phone and call Kristen. And she, she lost it. She lost it totally. 
the Innocence Commission relied almost exclusively on a false confession, a confession that we all know is false. We believed in his innocence without Craig Taylor's confession. We weren't trying to prove who committed the murder. We were trying to prove Greg's innocence. And what about Dwayne Deaver? You still want to call him? What intrigued me honestly about this case was how badly it was conducted at the trial level. We think we have absolutely plenty to go to the three-judge panel. All the evidence that was used to prove Greg Taylor's guilt could be completely discredited and to prove his innocence. And that's always been my goal, being innocent and for people to know that I'm innocent. If these people, which I believe they do, these judges have any desire to see the truth and if they have any integrity to do something about it, then that's the way it's gonna end up. If I was convinced in my mind that I'd kept an innocent person in jail for 17 years, it would tear me up. And I can tell you, I hadn't lost a minute's sleep over this. found the lab notes and flipping through the pages and found the section where um, I summarized Dwayne Deaver's testing of the critical items that um, have, had uh, been presented as having the victim's blood. They had not just stopped at those preliminary presumptive tests, they had actually conducted two rounds of confirmatory tests on the substances that were both negative. So in, in running that second round of testing, uh, they obtained negative results that told them this isn't human blood. And I remember hearing her running down the hall and she came in waving these papers. She said, you gotta look at this, you gotta look at this. That negative sign next to the confirmatory test was um, shocking to see because uh, it had never been revealed, not only to the defense, but to the prosecution uh, as far as we knew. When we found the lab notes, then the issue became, well, not only did they testify incorrectly, that phenolphthalein is a test for blood, the jury never heard that they did the second test to confirm its blood and didn't confirm it. That was the only evidence that they had to connect Greg in any way to the victim. You think this will go full three days? or? I think or this is going a, a week to 10 days. A week to 10 days? Yes. Everybody knew this was it. Uh, this was his last shot. And, but they also knew this was his best shot because this was the first time his case had really been investigated from a defense. One way is, is through Greg. I mean, he has repeatedly maintained his innocence right. from the moment they started beating on him up until this hearing. In a typical tr criminal trial, the defendant does not have a burden of proof. In this one, we had to affirmatively prove his innocence, and that made it doubly hard on us because um, criminal defense attorneys come from the perspective of the state has to prove the person guilty. And so it was a complete role reversal. And so going into it, I was, I was concerned. 
The strategy for the defense really was to take all the witnesses for the state at the trial level and use them as our witnesses to prove innocence in front of the three-judge panel. And this is an evidentiary hearing. The burden of proof is on uh, Mr. Taylor. And the burden of proof in this matter is by clear and convincing evidence. It's the first time I'd seen him ever in person. When he walked in, he sat down, he turned around. Kristen was sitting there, you know, nervous as all, squeezing my hand to death, and he looked me dead in my face, and he just gave me a wink like that, and. It, he acknowledged me. I mean, that to me, it just sent chills through me. The evidence in this hearing will show you that that conviction was of an innocent man based on flawed evidence. It is clear and will be clear from the evidence that the police almost immediately determined that Johnny Beck and Greg Taylor were responsible for the murder. No effort was made to determine if there were other people who may have had motives and opportunities to murder Jaquetta Thomas. None. As horrible as her wounds were, no blood on Johnny Beck, no blood on Greg Taylor, no blood on or in the car. Mr. Taylor, did you kill Jaquetta Thomas? No, sir. Were you present when she died? No, sir. Did you have anything to do with her death? No, sir. I was glad that he was able to tell his story, and I thought he did an outstanding job at it. could not have been uh, in a prone position such as we see it, it would have had to have been uh, raised upward. Meaning as if sitting or standing up? Um, sitting or standing, yes. It's important that she was upright because there was no evidence of her in the car. And if she had been bleeding to that extent, upright, she had to have been held up by something. So she was either held up by a vehicle and there was no evidence of her have, having been in the vehicle, or she was held up by an individual and there was no evidence of her having touched Johnny Beck or Greg Taylor in any way. And uh, both of those uh, confirmatory tests uh, were negative for blood. And then further testing to determine if the substance was human blood, had a negative reaction. Correct. Anywhere in that lab report after your review, do you see any indication where the analysts noted in the lab report that Takayama and Octolon, the Takayama test and the Octolon test were both negative? Um, not in this report, no, sir. So in, in running that second round of testing, 
they obtained negative results that told them this isn't human blood. And those confirmatory tests, those tests that showed it was not human blood, were never revealed. The officers who testified both testified it was human blood, that it was the victim's blood. The prosecution mentioned the blood evidence 17 times in the closing argument. It was a key part of the case. Those tire tracks were actually uh, developed with some severe tunnel vision and bias. What I saw here is what we have seen in um, investigations that have gone wrong, and that is there's tunnel vision, there's a rush to judgment, there's a premature closure um, in this case, just being locked into this hypothesis or this narrative that uh, uh, Mr. Taylor and, and Mr. Beck may, must have committed this murder because the, the truck was uh, near the scene. They just decided, uh, Greg, because he walked up to the crime scene and said that was his truck, they didn't even think think twice that, well, maybe he doesn't have anything to do with it. Why would someone just walk up and say, hey, that's my car out there? They just immediately seized on him and closed the case. And then everything from that point after that was centered on building a case around him. Do you have an opinion as to whether or not Greg Taylor and Johnny Beck could have committed this murder without leaving any trace evidence in or on the car involved or on Jaquetta Thompson? Uh, I think it's more than unlikely. I think it's really unfathomable that they could have committed this crime. Just really almost impossible. In the quantification, we got 0, 0.00 and even concentrating it down and amplifying, uh, you know, running, using the particular kits, we got absolutely no results whatsoever. There is absolutely nothing to indicate that human blood was present on either 16, 17, or 18, based on the DNA analysis alone. In your opinion, was there a sufficient sample to do testing? Yes. It was Megan's work in the case, um, doing the DNA and getting the 0.00% quantification showing there was no DNA in that suspected blood that really, um, I think, put the seal on everything. The handler told the investigators that, that he was not, he and his dog were not trained to do this and they said try it anyway. So therefore, what we have is we have a handler being told the outcome of what a particular mission is supposed to be. If the handler knows what the outcome is supposed to be, the handler can influence the dog. There were a lot of things that went wrong in this case. Okay. Um, that's number one. You never, give, you never give the dog handler the outcome. The most important part of Johnny's testimony was her statements about how uh, the handler was really leading the dog through the process. The dog was not leading the handler through the process. And how were they acting when you picked them up? They were acting normal. They, were just, they just walked up and they said, hey, could you give us a ride? Were they carrying anything when you picked them up? 
fact that they never found a weapon at the crime scene, and Barbara picked them up so close to the crime scene and they weren't carrying anything, I think was a critical piece of evidence. Are you now aware that there's testimony at trial that Johnny Depp and Greg Taylor were <coughs> in the house of East Street with an African-American woman, and did you leave the house yes, with sir. Greg Taylor and Johnny Depp? Yes, I did. Solemn testimony you should give the court should be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Say what you got. I do. That evening, did you ever pick up a woman? No. When you got into the cul-de-sac, the only people in the car were you and Greg Taylor? That's correct. Do you recall going into a house? I do recall going into a house. Did Barbara go in the house with you? Barbara went in. Barbara went in. He had a lot of character to get on that stand and face the potential of having something he said turned around on him and being charged with murder again. But he insisted on doing it. top of that page, Mrs. Hitch, is, is that an interview that you had with a detective named Blackman? Yes. Did he show you a picture of a black female? Yes. Were you able to identify her? It didn't, it didn't look like Jackie. It, it that didn't. woman did not look like Jackie. <laughs> and you, you, in fact, knew another Jackie, didn't you? Yes, she was much taller. Uh, had lighter hair. What it really comes down to is Eva Kelly was mistaken about who she saw in the house. Obviously, the person she saw them with that night was Barbara Ray. So can we agree that you had an agreement with the state yes, to testify? She really had nothing to offer to the prosecution until a couple weeks before trial uh, when just uh, it was very helpful that she was offered this uh, to have her sentence cut in half if uh, she would be willing to testify at Greg's trial. Are you sure of when you saw the times that you saw Greg Taylor and Johnny Beck? Am I sure of the times? Yes, ma'am. No. Then the black woman that you saw walk out the front of your house could not have been Jaquetta Thomas, could it? No. I could it, ma'am? I guess not. She clearly didn't have a, a very good memory of what had actually happened, yet her testimony was being used to put someone away for the rest of their lives. So anyone reading your formal report would not have known that you could not scientifically confirm that was blood? That's correct. Okay. You weren't called at trial either, were you? No, sir, I was not. Okay. So your testimony here today is that you had no choice in what you wrote on your reports, correct? As far as the language is concerned? I mean, I, 
As far as the language is concerned, yeah, I think, yeah, that's correct. And so this came from over you, correct? Above you? A lot higher than my pay grade is what they generally A lot say. higher than your pay grade. <clears throat> what they did in this case is institutional obstruction of justice. They withheld the truth about uh, this supposed blood from the defense and therefore withheld it from the jury. My criminal record dates back to 1966. So you spent uh, just over a quarter of your life in, in prison or jails? Correct. He's very honest that he only came forward because uh, he wanted a deal. Now, it's true according to your statement, isn't it, Mr. Andrews, that Mr. Taylor, in his initial conversations with you, as you relate them, never said one thing about having killed this woman or even being there when she was killed, did he? No, sir, he never said it. They killed this woman or Johnny killed this woman or, or anything. And have you also, Mr. Andrews, testified under oath that you hoped that Greg Taylor wasn't convicted on your word alone? Now, I probably seen that. I think he may have overheard Greg talking to the people Greg actually did know in the jail cell about what the police were saying had happened. But he also included pieces in his statement that were only from the newspaper. I think uh, everybody in that room knew that he wasn't a reliable person. defendant's evidence proves his innocence by any standard, much less clear and convincing evidence. The defendant did not produce any new, credible, verifiable evidence of innocence, and he didn't meet his burden, and I ask you to find accordingly. Thank you. We have proven to you that a sworn law enforcement officer and reputed scientist, according to his own testimony, withheld tests that showed there was no blood when he prepared his report, which went in front of the jury. Second is the testing done by Ms. Clement, which was unavailable in 1991, so couldn't have been done, has to be new evidence, that to a scientific certainty, no human blood is present. We now know that what Johnny Joyce says that dog did when it came back and sat by its handler was to say, I can't connect the scent of this woman to that truck. The interviews done by the police were all done by telling the interviewee what the police wanted to hear, what they were looking for. Eva Kelly tells them she doesn't know Jaquetta Thomas twice in two interviews. Two years later, she knows her and tells a story completely different from what she told the police immediately after the murder, and she gets a deal. Unfortunately, at the trial, of course, Greg Taylor's lawyers had no clue about Barbara Ray. And that leads us to Ernest Andrews, a career criminal, a habitual felon, a man who has proven by his life that there are not many things he is not willing to do. He described jailhouse snitching and what he needed to do to get himself some help. 
the police had made up their mind, Mr. Andrews simply confirmed their belief in the story. This man was wrongfully convicted by a jury with evidence that was tainted, and we all know it. This man, by a scientific certainty, has been proven to be innocent. Thank you very much. We are entering the following decision of the three-judge panel pursuant to NCGS 15A-1469. My heart was racing, and I was praying, and I was like, Lord, if this man is not freed, what am I going to do? NCGS 15A-1460, Section 1 provides claim of factual innocence means a claim on behalf of a living person convicted. In my mind, I was thinking, He's reading the statute so he can uh, justify to us why he's not going to find in our favor. Panel members have now considered GS 15A-1460 and second all the evidence presented in the arguments of counsel for the state. If I hadn't prayed 10 million times you know, for the truth to prevail, <laughs> I've never prayed about anything. And for Taylor, the convicted person, this matter is ready for disposition. I had people touching me and people holding my hands in front of me and my, and my sister beside of me with her arm around me and Everett. The decision, Judge Howard E. Manning Jr. rules that Gregory F. Taylor has proved by clear and convincing evidence that Gregory F. Taylor is innocent. Be quiet. When he read off the first, his ruling, um, you know, my heart kind of left. I think everybody's did. And then I remembered, oh God, I gotta, we gotta hear the other two. Judge Tanya T. Wallace rules that Gregory F. Taylor has proved by clear and convincing evidence that Gregory F. Taylor is innocent of the charge of first-degree murder of Jaquetta Thomas on September 26, 1991. My throat was tight. I felt like I couldn't breathe. Um, my, my stomach had a knot. Judge Calvin E. Murphy rules that Gregory F. Taylor has proved by clear and convincing <laughs> Gregory F. Taylor is innocent of the charge of first-degree murder of Jacetta Thomas on September 26, 1991. Relief sought by Gregory F. Taylor, the convicted person, is granted. The charge of first-degree murder of Jacetta Thomas on September 26, 1991 is dismissed. Signed this day, February 2010. This court is now adjourned, signed it
understand. I went over and shook hands with him as the same way I would do at the end of the toughest soccer match I ever played in, whether I won or lost. Um, I just thought it was an appropriate thing to do. Unbelievable. I mean, you think all these years, what this day would be like, 6,149 days, and finally the truth has prevailed. I ever, feel like I'm dreaming. If you ever want me to cry, just talk about my daughter. She was nine years old when I came to prison. She's 26 now. I missed her 10th birthday. I missed her 16th birthday. I missed her high school graduation. I missed her college graduation. I missed her marriage. I missed the birth of my grandson. And now all this return. And I'm taking him home. <laughs> <laughs> Seventeen years is a large chunk of my life. I'm uh, going on 50 years old. Life is not fair, but it's how you deal with it that counts. And you know, and I've tried to deal with this as well as I possibly could. I just see dreams of my daughter being happy and I being a part of her life. I don't know if there'll ever be complete resolution, so uh, you know I have to learn how I guess to embrace the abnormality and um, to take what I can positive out of it and move on.
This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.